Well, uh, maybe you've heard someone say, or maybe you've said it yourself, I'm not sure what I should do for the Lord, or I'm not sure of what I should be doing for the Lord. And tonight, the Apostle Peter is here to help you. Peter wants to clarify for us that the way that we live for Christ is much more tied up in demonstrating or living out the character of Christ than it is in the role we have in the body of Christ or the role we have in a given church. In other words, the Lord Jesus calls us to live for him day by day in every area of, his, of, of our lives, which brings him glory. Now, other people might not see that, but God indeed does see that. Well, what does that look like? It's very important as we continue now in 1 Peter that we go back to uh, here, chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, which we covered a couple of weeks ago, and we remember he's still talking out of this. And he says this, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So we spent a whole night on that. You can go back and watch uh, the, on YouTube or you can look on our website or on Facebook. And really what Peter's saying is that the Christian life is a lot more simple than people make it out to be. It's It's really based upon character. And as we'll be talking about tonight, we talked about last week about living in response to what Jesus has done for us. Now, some might object. They might say, that sounds like works, righteousness, salvation by works. And many people have taken such things that way. But just to review, or if you weren't with us last week, uh, last week we noted the consistent structure of the apostles' teaching is this. First, what we call the indicative. And that is what God has done for us and who we are in Jesus Christ. What God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ and who we are in Jesus Christ. And that, when we said that, that an easy way to remember that is that indicates what God has done for us. That was followed by, secondly, the apostles' structure of their writing is the imperative. So after knowing what God has done for us, we are given the imperative. It is imperative that we do these things. These are the, the commands of God, how we live, but get this, in light of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. How we live for God uh, in light of who we are in Jesus Christ. So the conclusion we come to is the heaven-bound people of God, who are the heaven-bound people of God, those who have put their trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God has come to live inside of them. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Practice or live out these virtues 
okay? Uh, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. They live out these virtues, uh, which is also very important in helping them to persevere in their faith. To put it another way, uh, this godly way of living, this demonstration of these character traits proves that someone is on their way to the eternal kingdom of heaven, provided, provided they have put their trust in Jesus. That will lead us to what is the title of tonight's message, Productive Faith from God's Point of View. See, we have this idea of what we think productive faith is, and primi primarily, we discussed this already, we limit it to the clergy or the, or the super-Christians. You know, people say like, oh, it's, it's the disciples. But every Christian is a disciple. Every true Christian is a disciple. A disciple is simply a learner and follower of Jesus. Now you say, well, this is Peter. What would the Apostle Paul say? And... Um, while the Apostle Peter states it here positively, the Apostle Paul states it negatively and positively. Let's just look at the, the negative, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. And if you're like, I don't do any of that stuff, he says, and the like. So we're all busted at that. He says, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. We're not going to go down that road right now, but what we just read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, really has some similarities. And so it's not necessarily, well, it has to be all of these. It's just these are the character traits of Jesus lived out in his people. Now, there, there's a pattern that to me, seems evident in the Bible. And, and I think we're seeing it as we go through this chapter. We could go through this chapter quickly, but I think it's worth going slowly to unpack so much of the richness that he's giving to us. And, and so I'm tying together some of the things because I don't want us to miss stuff, but we also have to know that we have to connect the dots. And there's a, there's a pattern that's evident in the Bible to me that I think is evident in this chapter. And I remember it this way. I always like to use things to remember it. And I call it gob, G-O-B, gob. Uh, grace, obedience, blessing. The order is super important. A lot of people think, well, if God shows me his grace and he blesses me, then I'll obey him. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. So Grace. We are saved by God's grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we are called to obey 
what Jesus says. That comes, the, the imperative is that God has saved us. Uh, I'm sorry, the indicative is that God has saved us. And the imperative is that we obey. And then we are blessed. Now, we are blessed as we obey God in this life. Yet most of the blessing that we are going to receive for obeying God will be not here on earth as we know earth, but it will be in the next life. So I believe that in 2 Peter chapter 1, we saw grace in verses 3 and 4. We saw the call to obedience in verses 5 to 7, and we're going to see it again tonight in verses 8 to 9, and the blessing we will see in, chap, in verses 10 and 11, Lord willing, next week. So let's jump into verse 8. Now that we've read 5 through 7, and I want, I want to read it twice because I'm going to interrupt it the second time. He says, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go slower. For. That word is a connective word. It connects us to what we just read in verses 5 through 7. For if these things, if these qualities, if these character characteristics are yours and abound, if, if, they're, if they're evident in your life, this is God's assessment of your life. If this is, these qualities are evident in your life, again, uh, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. He says, if those things are evident in your life, God says, you will be neither barren. Some of your versions say ineffective. Other versions say useless, nor unfruitful. So God says, if these things are present in your life, even though you might not see it, you might not think that your role is that important. He says, no, you are living an effective Christian life. So you won't be barren nor unfruitful. Some versions say unproductive in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how we identify a productive and fruitful faith in God's eyes. It may not be in our eyes. It may not be like, oh, they're so spiritual, or wow, they're really something. God says, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for people to be wowed by you. I'm, I'm looking for people, or wowed by somebody else, I'm looking for people to live after my heart, the things that I am changing within you. And so uh, coming to know God personally, and that's where it all begins. You, we know God through the person of Jesus Christ. And growing in knowing God personally, that is the Christian life. As we often say, the goal of the Christian life is being with Jesus and being like Jesus. And you, you start to 
become more like the people you're with, correct? Uh, Some of you have been here a long time. You you know the story that um, when I was hanging out with one of my friends when I was younger, who my mother was not always too particularly happy that I would uh, be hanging out with, I would come home and she would say to me, how's Billy? And I'd be like, oh, is she following me? How did she know? But Billy talked out of the side of his mouth like this. And when I would come home, my mother would say, I would be talking like this. (laughs) So she knew that I was with Billy, even though I wasn't always supposed to be with him. And so we become like the people we are with. And that's why the goal of the Christian life is to be with Jesus. That's why we so encourage you to spend time uh, in the word of God. And the more you are with Jesus, the more you will become like Jesus. So the apostle Peter is describing the correct way to live out the Christian life And the reason he's doing it and the reason we're going into so much detail about what he's saying is he's going to compare it to the false teachers in chapter 2 who had infiltrated the church. And that still goes on today. False teachers will infiltrate the church with their own brand of Christianity or their own brand of faith And they will try to get people away from the basics of the Bible, often to follow after them. And so Peter wants them to be very, very careful. Now, very interesting, if you had a bunch of false teachers in a church, or even one prominent false teacher in a church, and you were writing a letter, wouldn't you be tempted to start with the false teacher? Wouldn't you be tempted to think, you know what, I got to make sure I deal with this issue of false teacher, but not Peter. You see, Peter knows that general, genuine followers of Jesus recognize false teachers when they hear them, recognize false teachers when they see them. You know, a lot of people have gone on, on certain types of uh, Christian-type event things or, or ministry-type things, and they come back and they say, it was nice but there was no gospel. There, there was no really, we, we cared for people, but we didn't care for their souls. We didn't care for them eternally. But yet they were told by people, this is, this is what you know, God always wants for us to do. And I'm not saying we don't help people. Please don't get me wrong. We, that's a big part of the outgrowth of our faith. But we don't want to put the cart before the horse. Also for them and for us, to personally see that the true knowledge of Jesus Christ produces these spiritual qualities in us. Now, there's a really, really interesting word in verse 8 that I did not emphasize on purpose because I wanted to not think, oh, I understand it, but I wanted us to focus on it now. And it is the word abound. It says in verse 8, if these things or if these qualities are yours and they abound. Now, this is a very, that's a very, very interesting statement. Let's go back up the page a little to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, as his divine power 
has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So when you read that, he's given us everything. And then he moves into verse 5 and 7. It actually seems that a true follower of Jesus already has verses 5 and through 7 in them. Or at the very least, the potential for them is in them in the sense that they are in them, but they need to be developed. They need to grow. So when we read those things from chapter uh, 1 here, verses 5 through 7, you might think, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't know if I have those qualities. Here, Peter seems to indicate that the issue is not do you have those quality traits that were in verses 5 through 7, but the real question is, are they abounding in us? So God's almost, if you will, put them into our DNA as Christians, and now he's saying, are they abounding in us? Now, some of your versions say are they, they are increasing to me, that sounds a little bit too much like something we measure. And, and I'm not so sure that we're like, well, it's, we're, you know, it's increasing now, but not so much later. Uh, on the other hand, abounding points to much more of fact, the fact that these qualities are overflowing in our lives. They are abounding. They're overflowing in the life of a follower of Jesus. It also does something very important. You look at that list of things, and some people would go, oh, that's not my gift. Peter says, no, 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 no. You, you can't make that excuse. Rather, we seek, Peter's telling us, to grow in these qualities of godliness and we grow in how we live them out. And how do we grow in them? In simple, everyday life. Not some spectacular thing. I mean, you can come into church, you can look very godly, but when you're running late for work and you stop at the store, maybe or to get a cup of coffee or something like that, and the person at the cash register maybe is new and they're training and you're spitting bullets. Those are the times when God is developing those character traits in you. Now, this is just an opinion, but it seems to me that the American church makes it too easy for people to be spectators. We come in, we leave. We come in, we leave. If we're really, you know, hyper-spiritual, we throw a few shekels in the offering box or something like that. And not only do we make it easy for people to be spectators, we make it easy for people to be content with a lack of spiritual growth. Thinking that, you know, just showing up to church is good enough. Now, now, I understand this might be hard to hear, but it might be better to think of a lack of spiritual growth as a sign of a dying faith or a sign of a faith that's actually 
died. Now you say, why would you say that? Because Peter uses what words? Barren and unfruitful. And what is this, that a sign of in a tree? That it's dead. On the other hand, if these qualities exist, and not only do they exist, they abound, it will be seen in the conscious choices that we make in daily living. People who abound in these godly qualities won't be idle in their Christian life. They will be effective and productive in God's eyes. In other words, no matter what you might think about your Christian life, when God sees you living with the godly traits that he has prescribed, you are a spiritual success. You are on the right path. You are on the right track. Why is this important? Because true followers of Jesus have what is known as holy discontentment. What does that mean? Well, it means a number of things. For one, it means they're not content with a little bit of Jesus. It's, it's just not enough. They're, they're discontented with that. Another thing is, is if they are people who are on mission for Jesus, they are not content with the fact that a lot of people have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Like I often say to us, I don't think we should rest until the name of Jesus Christ is famous in Northwest New Jersey. Once again, though, I hate to say this, I don't think the American church is really helpful here. It seems to me, when I think of the American church, it reminds me a lot. We studied in Matthew chapter 13 a couple years ago, and Jesus speaking in the parable of the soils, particularly soil number three. Remember that one? That was the crops that grew up among the thorns. Now think for a second. You're a guy and you're a seasoned farmer and you're throwing out the seed that you bought and you're throwing out a lot of seed and that's what we do as Christians. We throw out as much seed as we can. You know why? Because we don't know where it's going to take. We don't know where it's going to take. We don't know if we're going to throw in the first seed, you throw it out and the devil comes, the birds come along and snatch it. The devil comes along and snatches it. The people leave talking to you and they're like, what an idiot. I don't, what is that guy talking about? snatched away or they the seed goes out and it goes in into the ground but there's not much depth to the roots and then a little bit of trouble comes along and they're gone now most people look at those two things and they think yeah that's a shame that that happened but that's not really you know that doesn't apply to a lot of people who who sort of you know come and go to church on a somewhat of a regular basis but then Jesus comes to the third type of soil, where they're the crops that grew among the thorns. Now again, let's take a seasoned farmer. Why would a seasoned farmer go over to a bunch of thorns, a bunch of pucker brush, and throw seed 
into the middle of it when he knows it's going to get choked out by the thorns. Why would he do that? The answer is he wouldn't. She wouldn't. So the soil originally looked good. Things looked good at the beginning. But then Jesus tells us that some such people are actually unfruitful. They were not really followers of Jesus. Why? He said because they were choked by the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So everything they had to take care of in life, they were worried about that. Oh, would love to go to church this morning. Got to cut my lawn. Up. Oh, would love to go to church this morning. Oh, this is dirty pool. It's Mother's Day on Sunday, right? Take mom to church and then take her out. Uh, you know, or, oh, I, I got I to I gotta make a living. I got to make a living. God knows that I got to make a living. Loved ones, um, when people say to you or when they say to us, it's almost like we have to make a pact with one another that we are too busy for the Lord, we have to confront one another in a loving way. You know, you're being unfruitful. You're being unproductive. You're being, sad to say, you're being barren. To say we're too busy for the Lord is to be unfruitful. And I've told you this a thousand times and I'll say it a thousand more times. That should not close the conversation. That should open the conversation. You see, you say to your friends, hey, you used to be serving the Lord or walking with the Lord. What happened? And you go, I'm busy. And people go, oh, he can't do it because he's busy. Do you really think that's going to fly at, at Judgment Day? You really think that's going to fly? Come on now. Come on. You know, your boss gives you a job to do and you don't do it. And you go, oh, I was busy. He's like, well, that's not going to fly. And so that should not close the conversation. It should begin at, why? Because Jesus classifies those people as unbelievers. Peter seems to be saying much of the same thing here, that if these virtues don't abound in you, you're probably not a believer. You're probably not. You're probably what we call church people. But you're probably not a true follower of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter attaches the, uh, these good works to the end of verse 8. He says they are done in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All good works are done in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the head knowledge, although that's important. It's important to know your Bibles. That's why we're here. But in knowing God personally through Jesus Christ. In other words, knowing God through Jesus Christ is the beginning of the Christian life. And everything that we say or do is to flow out of that. So the Christian life doesn't, it's not like God says, oh, well, you did all this stuff. Come on into heaven. No, no, no. He says, you're, you're, you're heaven-bound people because you, I've adopted you. You've trusted in my son. 
Now go out and live these things out. Uh, it's seen in people. You see it in their desire to know Jesus more and to serve Jesus more. So what's easy to forget is much of the knowledge of Jesus is demonstrated in our service to others with our time and our talents and our treasure. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here with us tonight. You might be like, okay, how do I get on board? How do I, how do I, how do I join the team? What, what, what do I do? This knowledge begins with realizing that you've been walking away from God your whole life. You might be like, I'm, I'm cool with him, but, but you're not walking with him. And if you're not walking with him, you're walking away from him and you turn around and you come back to him. That's called repentance. And then you get, you look up at the cross, you see Jesus dying for you. That's putting your trust in him. So you turn to God and you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Yet, yet, that continues to grow throughout that relationship, that knowledge of knowing Jesus continues to grow throughout our whole life. Salvation, coming to have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Knowing God is an event, but becoming more like Jesus, what we call sanctification, is a process. Now, the apostles are all very clear on this. A renewed lifestyle of loving service is a sign of a heart renewed by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, once God has gotten a hold of us, that's why we say we don't, you know, we, we don't, we don't read the Bible to grasp it. We read it to have it grasped by us, to have it grasp us, sorry. Same thing with God. Once he has gotten into us, our lifestyle is dramatically changed. But as we will see, particularly in chapter 2, the lifestyle of many people contradicts their profession of faith. And when that happens, the genuineness of their conversion is called into question. Now, I'm not talking about a mistake you make here and there. I'm talking about willing lifestyle rebellion to God is not something to be characteristic of a child of God. But, but knowing Jesus personally, which is a dominant theme in 2 Peter, provides all we need to grow in these qualities. So in verse 9, Peter analyzes the, a lack of Christian growth. After he told us, this is how you're productive. Grow in these qualities. Don't worry about people saying, well, you know, you're not this or you're not that. Grow in these qualities. You say, well, somebody asked me if I wanted to get involved in, in serving at the church. That's part of growing in these qualities. You know, my, my boss asked me to help a coworker. That's part of growing in these qualities. And so he analyzes a lack now of Christian growth in verse 9. 
For he who lacks these things, lacks the qualities of verses 5 through 7, is short-sighted. Some of your versions say nearsighted, even to blindness. Some versions just flat out say they're blind and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. The Apostle Peter seems to be saying here, there are people, sadly, lots of them. Sadly, dare I go out on a limb, but it's really not much of a limb. Most people who say they are Christians, even you could say by far people who say they are Christians, show very little, little practical evidence of it. There's very little seen in them. In other words, they're not living lives that are motivated by and responsive to the wonderful grace of God that is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's review the work of Jesus Christ again quickly. God created the world. He told us how to live. And people went, what? Don't tell us what to do. We're not doing it. Right? Very simple. Garden of Eden, one command. Just one. Like, just one. <laughs> right? And so what does God do? God, in his great love, becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ, lives a perfect life in our place, dies a sinner's death on the cross in our place to prove God the Father was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. He rose him from the dead and he is now seated at the right hand of God and he came the first time as a savior. He will come the second time as a judge. And so what, such people who claim to be Christians who are not living in response to that, who have not put their trust in Jesus' life instead of their own. Instead of Jesus' death on the cross for, as punishment for our sins, they're, they're trusting they're going to make it on their own. The all apostles are in full agreement that such people can call themselves Christians, but they really are not Christians. And he says it right here. He says they're short-sighted. They are nearsighted. And what does, it, what does he mean? In that they only see today. They only see what's best for them and they have lost, if they ever had it, the reality of the eternal. They're not thinking eternally. They're only thinking in the moment. Do you ever know any people who just make completely dumb decisions in the moment? It's like a habitual thing that they do. And you're trying to say to them, you know, you got to think beyond a little bit. You know, like, oh, I knew when I did that. I felt so guilty when I was done. Well, you know, think about what, what happens when you do that. But people are not, they're blind. They're, they're short-sighted. They're nearsighted. They, they can only see what's right in front of them. They cannot see the eternal. And that makes them spiritually blind. In that, when we only live for what is in the here and now, we, and we're blinded, we cannot see what the Lord wants us to see. Now, the original text actually is written differently. 
And it doesn't make a lot of sense to us because our Bible versions say that we're short-sighted even to the point of blindness or near-sighted even to the point of blindness. And we think of someone who can't really see very well and it's getting worse and it's getting worse and it's getting worse till eventually they are blind. But the original text, very interesting, says that we're blind and short-sighted. So blind is first. You're like, well, if you're blind, you can't be short-sighted because you can't see anything. And this is what we would call an attempt by the translators to help us to understand. But if blind is first, it seems to me that spiritual blindness has quite a bit of intentionality about it. That people are blind on purpose. People claiming to be Christians deliberately close their eyes to the things of God. I think that's what he means. Because if you're blind and, you, and you're short-sighted, it means you really can see, but they're choosing to be blind. They're choosing to close their eyes to the things of God. They know what they're doing is wrong. They know how they're living is wrong. It's, it's even starting to weigh upon them. And, to, and I'm telling you, man, to carry habitual sin around with you. I've seen it in so many people. It is so disabling. It is so hard. It messes with your mind. James called it, remember, the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, living with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And really, in reality, you don't have a foot in the kingdom of God. You're, you're living in the world. By shutting their eyes, they live for themselves and their decisions are based upon their current desires in the moment. In God's eyes, this is so sad. This is someone who has completely lost their way. They don't know where they are. They don't know where they are going. They've taken their eyes off the prize. They've taken their eyes off the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. They've taken their eyes off eternity and placed them solely on the moment. Now, listen, I'm not saying there's not a place for living in the moment. If you want to keep your job, your boss comes in and says, hey, you didn't do the job. You're like, oh, I'm just sitting here thinking of eternity. You're going to lose your job. But we have to keep both in proper perspective. The result, if they even ever were true followers of Jesus, look at the end of verse 9. They've forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Now, this is an interesting term, the word forgot. Very, very interesting term in the Bible. We've talked about it recently where God says, you know, I cast your sins behind me. I forget them never to see them no more. It's not like God has a bad memory. He's just, just like, that's it. I'm done. I, I, I forget them. But, but the Bible often uses, as far as we go, the term forget in a practical sense. So it's not as so much an inability to remember 
Um, it's more the practical, we forget the practical ways in which God wants us to live. So you can be the most gifted person in the church. Seriously, you can. But, but if you don't have self-control, if you don't have godliness, if you don't have brotherly kindness, God doesn't see you as a, or me as a success. He doesn't see it at all in that way. And so they've lost their way. This is a very powerful statement. Being blind and being short-sighted leads you to forget what Jesus has done for you on the cross. When you choose, and I choose, to go our own way, when we choose not to obey the Lord, are our eyes on Christ and, his, and, the, and Jesus Christ crucified? No. When the Apostle Paul went to the Corinthians, he said, I came to you, I was determined to know, know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does that mean Paul didn't know what he wanted for lunch? Does that mean he didn't know anything about anything else? No. That means he knew that's where the power came from to live for God. In, in, a, in a regular focus upon Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's so, so what happens is if you and I forget that, that leads to a practical failure to live our lives out of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that Jesus offers to us. That's why we often refer to such people living in such a way as spiritual amnesia. They're just, they just, just, it's gone. It's almost like it's, it, it's all that Jesus has done for them as, is vaporized. They have chosen blindness over Christ. Now, if you have a study Bible, I know a lot of you do. You know the one with the answers on the bottom. If you have a study Bible, it might say that the Apostle Peter is talking about baptism. Now, if it does, I'm not objecting to your study Bible. Don't throw it out. I just hope that it, it explains it to you in some fashion. Baptism, I think largely symbolizes death. You go into the water, you die with Christ, you are raised with Christ to the newness of life. You are raised to new life in Christ. But a lot of times people will say you go into the water of baptism and you come out and your sins are washed away. And that would seem to be what, if it is baptism he's referring to here is, it would refer to a very common terminology in the Bible, the washing away of our sins. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that it is the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. Not the water in the baptismal tank or the lake or something like that. It is the blood of Jesus. And water, it's often used to uh, depict cleansing, often used to uh, as a symbolic 
a picture of the Holy Spirit because it is he, the Holy Spirit, who makes us what the, what the scriptures call a new creation in Christ. Now, there's a very important distinction that we have to make here. Or we're going to get, if we just think, well, it's all in baptism. Once I got to get baptized to be saved, you're missing the point if he's talking about baptism. It was very, very different in the first century church and the early church. Converts were baptized almost immediately after they repented and believed, after they turned to God and put their trust in Jesus. They didn't wait. You know, people say stuff today like, well, I'm not ready to get baptized. I need to get a few things in my life straightened out. No, 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 that's not what baptism is. You don't, you don't straighten yourself out to get baptized. You believe. You trust in Jesus. And if you have genuinely trusted in Jesus, you are eligible for baptism. So, so baptism, which, by the way, is a command. And now that the weather's getting warmer, maybe we'll do some here in the church. We'll do some outside at a picnic or something like that. But you want to get yourself baptized. If you have never have been baptized as a follower of Jesus, you want to get yourself baptized. Don't be sitting there getting all oh, about it. We'll be giving you information on that. Uh, but that's a command. In fact, if you get letters from missionaries like in Asia and uh, in Africa, it will read like this. I was baptized on this date. They take that, and that really means I believed and I was baptized on this date. So, so very, 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 very important to understand that. Now, some churches, we do, we have a baptism class. And is that in the Bible? No. Is it bad to have one? No. Because what happens if you get in the pool with me, I look you right in the eye. You're getting the, in the pond with me or the lake with me or the pool with me or wherever we are with me. If I'm the one doing the baptizing and I'm not only one who baptizes around here. If, listen, if you, you have a friend who brought you to Christ, get him in the pool. God, bring him in the pool with us. Well, that's a great thing. You know, I love to see like parents, they baptize their their uh, their children, or or I've seen I've seen parents baptize their parent, uh, kids baptize their parents. I mean, fifty year olds baptizing a seventy year old. It's just wonderful stuff to see. But if you're in the pool with me, the first question I ask you is this: Do you know that there is no reason that God would take you into heaven except for the fact of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? And if you go no, that's not true. I'm a good person. I'm going to ask you to get out of the pool. That's embarrassing, isn't it? And I don't want to embarrass you. So we do have a class because we want you to understand what it is that we're going to have you do. And so, but, but a lot of times you'll see missionaries will say, I believe that I was baptized. I came to Christ and I was baptized. And for many people, Baptism serves as a reminder. Reminder of what? That they were cleansed of their sins. By the water? No. 
by grace, through faith, through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and by the blood of Jesus. So Peter has the same theology as the rest of the New Testament, if he's saying it's baptism. We receive the forgiveness of sins, and a godly life is evidence that we have received the grace of God. Baptism is just a command of the New Testament. Yet the man or the woman who makes no grace-motivated effort to grow in grace, what has happened to them if they've been baptized? If you've been baptized and you don't have, make any effort to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, what would you? This I know it's not easy to hear. Jesus said to the religious leaders, I say these things so you can be saved. It could mean that you never genuinely were saved. Or it could mean that you are actually in the process of renouncing your baptism and apostatizing. We'll talk about more about that term in a second. Now, Others take the view that Peter is not talking about baptism. Uh, just the fact that the Bible talks about, he, all they're saying, all he's talking about is our sins are washed away. So I don't want to go into further into that explanation. Which is right? I don't really know. I don't really know. Kind of lean towards the second but I don't really know. You say, well, you don't seem like you're wrestling with this one too much, Pastor Jim. I'm not. Why aren't you wrestling with this one, Pastor Jim? Thank you for asking. I'm glad you asked. Because both take you to the same place. Whether he's talking about baptism or whether he's just talking about your sins being washed away, if, if you're not living for God, both take you to the same place you're living for yourself. So in that sense, it doesn't really matter if we nail down what Peter's talking about. It's so important for us to see there is no standing still in the Christian life. Did you hear that, loved ones? There is no standing still in the Christian life. We are either moving ahead or we are falling behind. We are either growing or we are slowing. We are either uh, diving deeper into the Lord and the cross of Christ or we are forgetting the forgiveness of sins. This is very serious and this is very sobering. If we are not growing, we are in God's eyes unproductive and ineffective. We are in effect saying to the Lord Jesus, if we have no desire to grow, if we have no desire to learn his word, if we have no desire to, to be part of God's people, we are in effect saying to the Lord Jesus, your love, your grace, your cross, 
your offer of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life no longer matter to me. Why? Because I'm among the thorns. I'm among the thorns. Again, I know that's hard to hear, but it's something we all need to be so wary of. That number three, soil, not the good soil, that's number four. That among the thorns soil terrifies me. Terrifies me. Because it is so easy to be concerned about the cares of this world. So if you get to the point in time where the, 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 the love and the grace and the cross of Christ no matter, don't matter to you any longer, that is apostasy. That is a rejection of the faith. That is a defection from the faith. And it usually starts subtly. And it's hard to detect. False teachers or our own ideas will get our eyes off of Jesus. And then what happens is it starts to manifest itself in habitual, ungodly behavior. And, and once it starts, it's not always that easy if it, when it becomes habitual. Not, not if you just once or twice, but when it's habitual, it becomes a very, it's like a runaway train. It's a very hard thing to stop. The result is that people who once made a profession of faith are now out of the faith. And the Apostle John would say because they never really were in the faith. Another way to look at this is, and um, sometimes I make a joke about this, but it's really not funny, is the, is the people who are going to be in heaven in the back row with Elvis. Such people are saved. They have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But the way they live their lives completely makes them unproductive and unfruitful because they have no testimony they have really nothing to offer to unbelieving people. People are like, if that's Christianity, I don't want any part of it. Or what's different about that guy than, than everybody else? In reality, you can go to church. You can, you can do good works. But if you go back to your vices and don't want to get help, or you're content in your vices, or you are completely self-centered. Every decision in your life is based upon what's best for you. You're not living the Christian life. You're not. This is not about being perfect. What Peter is teaching us is it's about increasing in godly effectiveness, it's increasing in godly character. Why is godly character so important? Because it's an evidence of grace. That's why it's so important. Because it shows that God is at work in your life.
We often hear people say, I'm saved. I'm just not walking with the Lord. I don't think I would say that to the Apostle Peter. That would be something I probably wouldn't say. I don't think I would say that. I don't even like to say that about others who are, who are living selfishly, claiming some past salvation. Oh, I prayed that prayer back in 1994. I prayed that prayer back in 2005. I prayed that prayer back in 2018. I pr prayed that prayer last month. That's, that's not a good place to be. That, that's not a good place to be at all. How do you know that you weren't one of those first two seeds that Jesus talked about? The devil snatched it or a little trouble came and you bailed that he says are unbelievers. How, how do you know that, that, that that's not you? And so sometimes people just say they, they're just like, well, I, you know, I, you know, I'm saved. I'm not, I'm not walking with the Lord. Or people say, well, I'm just a carnal Christian. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even know if there's such a thing. I really don't. If 1 Corinthians wasn't in the Bible, I would say there isn't. <laughs> but but maybe, maybe there is. Here's the danger. A lot of people will be spiritually slacking, will not be trying to pursue hard after Jesus, and they try to hide it with good works. When all the people around them are like, there's no fruit there. there there's, no, there's no godliness there. Oh yeah, they do good works, but man, everything else about them is just really not right. Productive faith from God's point of view is a maturing faith. It's not the same as when you first put your trust in Jesus Christ. So if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, let's start tonight. Let's start tonight. But if you have, I want you to look back on when you first put your trust in Jesus Christ. A month, a year, 10 years, 40 years, 50 years, whatever it is, your, 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 face, your faith should not be the same. It should be very, very different. That's why verse 10 and 11, which we'll look at next week, and I really hope you will join us next week. I just love verse 10 and 11. I love them. It's, it's a passage to me that's just too important to run through quickly. Peter will call us to the most worthy goal in life next week. The most worthy goal in life and he will also call us to really have the assurance that we are truly children of God. But what he has been doing now is very important. What's he been doing? He's been giving us what I would call a theology of growth. It's a theology of growth. He's teaching us what it means to grow in God. He's been striking the balance. He's been keeping the tension between God's part of bestowing grace upon us and our part in growing in grace.
Grace followed by what? Obedience. That's what he has been teaching us about. From the very beginning of the Christian church, we see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the true people of God. That means, when we talk about the pouring out, that means that the Holy Spirit, Jesus said that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of a follower of Jesus. We often say that, that Galatians says, Jesus says, I will send the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, into our hearts of all those who put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Again, remember what I called earlier, gob. Grace, obedience, blessing. So far, mainly, we've been talking about grace and obedience. Now, again, there is a blessing in obeying the Lord. But up until now, we've been, if you will, looking behind the scenes. Not next week. Not next week. Next week, Peter is going to tell us about the incredible blessing that awaits us. I mean, it, it's clear in the Bible. And, it, and people say, I, don't, I stay away from the Old Testament. It's clear in the Old Testament. When we believe, by the grace of God, we get a new heart. The Scripture says that we before we believe, have a heart of stone. And God, when we believe, God takes that heart of stone and he yanks it out of us. We get a heart transplant and he puts a heart of flesh in us, a soft heart towards God. That, and that new heart does what? It produces a desire to obey. Clearly, taking that old heart out, putting that new heart in, is God's work and glory to God. To God be the glory. The danger that we face, and Peter wants to make sure he's nailing this down with us. The danger that we face is being too passive in that way of living with our new heart. And there's plenty of people out there that are teaching that you just let God do everything and the scandals abound. Sadly, Christianity has many people who have left all the work up to God and so many of them eventually fall away from the faith or go back to the old vices that they once left because they take the grace of God but they don't take it and they don't do anything with it. So the grace continues to increase and grow in them. Others will cite passages that teach about obedience in a way, without looking at what God did first, they will teach that it all depends upon us. Almost like God said, hey, I saved you, now get to it, right? Get, get to it. it it's, almost, it's almost like God's like, well, you're in the army now. You, you, went through, you went through boot camp, now get out and fight the war. Fill your life with, with, with serving and with good works, and then I'll know that you're really sold out. 
Now, if you ask those people, do you believe we're saved by grace? They'll say yes. But when you listen to their teaching, it almost sounds like we're saved by grace and maintained by works. That is not true at all. We are saved by grace and we are maintained by grace. You see, the proper way to see things is that there's God's part and there is our part. Again, there is the indicative, what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. And there is the imperative, how we are to live according to God's commands in response to what Jesus has done for us. Now, some people will go, well, do we do, is it the grace of God or, or do we live for God? The question in itself is going to lead you to the wrong answer. It's the proper biblical view is not to see the passages as contradictory. The proper biblical view is to see the passages as complementary. Let's just say someone gave you a coin. And you looked at it and you're like, this doesn't really look so good. And you flipped it over and it was blank on the other side. Now, unless there was some major mint error that you are unaware of and you have something extremely valuable, you know that you have something fake because there's two sides of a coin that are needed to make it authentic. And the same is true of faith. In other words, the Holy Spirit sets us apart and makes us holy. Clearly, God's part. Clearly, I mean, there's no way, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And we, with the Holy Spirit's help, work hard at becoming practically holy. How do we do that? By utilizing the means of grace prayer, Bible study, serving God meeting with other Christians, being generous. These are some of the many things. There's many spiritual disciplines that we do. And what do these things do? They grow the godliness that is already in us. So we have a responsibility. In chapter 2, it seems the people who Peter is writing to have been teaching that our part is really not that important. It is. You can't do it without God's part. But that doesn't mean we are passive. That doesn't mean we are idle. That doesn't mean we just sit here and go, I wonder when God's going to make me godly. That's not what we do. Classic passage on this. John chapter 8. A woman is caught in adultery. The religious leaders come to Jesus. They test him and they say, Our law says that we should stone her. Jesus starts writing some stuff on the ground. People people don't know what he's writing. Some people think he might be writing some of the sins of some of the people in in the direct vicinity. I don't know if that's true, but that's pretty darn funny. I would be like, I love this guy. And then Jesus' famous line comes out. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. 
Some of us were raised on it. He who has no sin, let them cast the first stone. So all the people put the stones down. Anyone who had any in their hand and they all one by one, they left. Until Jesus is just standing there, him and the woman alone. John 8, 10 through 11 says this. When Jesus had raised himself up, remember he was writing on the ground, and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now let's look at the very last thing that Jesus says to her. Very important. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's pick it apart. Neither do I condemn you. What's that? That's grace. That's the cross of Jesus Christ, even though it hasn't happened yet. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. So grace and the cross of Christ. God's part or our part? Clearly God's part. Clearly God's part. But then what does Jesus do? He's got the coin in his hand, and he's got grace and salvation and forgiveness of sins and eternal life and the blood of Jesus. That's all on one side of the coin. But then what does he do with this woman? He flips the coin. In light of everything that I have done, the indicative, in light of all that I have done and who you now are because of what I have done in and through you, he flips the coin and what does he say? Go and sin no more. Whose part is that? That's our part. That's her part, which by the grace of God is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, important word, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, what joy? Well, most people say saving sinners. I wouldn't disagree with that, but I actually think just as equal or probably even more is the reward of obedience. What's the joy? Sitting at the right hand of God. Being part of God's family again. Being back where he belongs. And that's what we're going to see next week. The joy that awaits all of those who put their trust in Jesus. It goes far beyond just having our sins forgiven. It takes us in to the next realm and what we can expect. Well, let's pray.